that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available always as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. In 2010, the Government of Canada accepted one and a half times more migrant workers than permanent Canadian residents. I am discussing Canada's temporary foreign worker program today with journalist Crystal Alarcon. She is author of a recent series which looks at the highly controversial program. And if cities are drivers of economic development, unemployment is of concern, especially at a time when we know that cities like Vancouver lack well-paying jobs and we're trying to create those jobs. Should we then question the impact of this program, the Foreign Temporary Workers Program, which many argue simply drives wages down and opens the door for highly exploitative conditions. We'll be discussing these issues and more. You're tuned into the city and our dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us.
Crystal Alarcon, thank you so much for uh, being with me. You've just written a series for the TAI on uh, foreign temporary workers and that program here in Canada. Can you first outline uh, what you cover in the series? Sure. Um, well, it is a four-part series, and um, the first part is sort of a general overview of the program and and flaws within it, um, through which I highlight uh, several cases of abuse um, that have occurred uh, since the program started in 2002, and, and some of these cases flew off the radar. Some of them were a bit more covered by the media. Um, and so some examples would be, well, the worst one yet is uh, the deaths of three Chinese um, migrant workers in the oil sands in Alberta when they were constructing an oil tank and and, uh, and uh, the structure fell on them. And so that was one case. And then there's a few other cases of uh, workers who had to pay exorbitant um, uh, recruitment fees, uh, ranging from 2000 to 4000 uh, workers who are just deported on, on their employer's whims. Um, and so in the second piece uh, was um, a specific case that I highlighted, which was the uh, Canada line uh, Latino, sorry, Latin American workers who were hired to build a new transit line for the uh, Olympics in Vancouver in 2010. And uh, these workers got a fraction of what their European counterparts were paid, uh, SLE and SNC-Lavalin, which are two major uh, international engineering corporations paid these workers initially um, what uh, the uh, union organizer said amounted to less than minimum wage at the time, uh, actually much less, um, which I think it was $6 at the time, and they got well below that, around three fifty an hour, um, considering they worked 70-hour work weeks and were paid $1,000 U.S. per month for the first two months. And they filed a human rights case, which they won in 2008, but have yet to see the money because the companies appealed the decision. So now most of the workers are back in their homelands in Costa Rica, Colombia, and uh, Ecuador, and are still waiting to see the money. Then the third piece uh, is a more recent case, which is um, Denny's, um, a... Uh, another international company um, who serves breakfast uh, usually 24 hours a day um, here in, in Vancouver paid their workers, uh, did not pay their workers overtime, did not pay for their, um, their airfares to come to Vancouver and uh, did not give them the promised hours that they were supposed to receive in their contracts. And uh, these are all, by the way, alleged since the case is still pending. And so one worker, uh, Alfredo Salas, decided to stand up for himself and his fellow 70 other colleagues, all from the, mostly from the Philippines, who he realized went through the same um, mistreatment as him. And so they filed a class action suit um, against Denise. Um, this was launched, I think, just last year, 
mm-hmm. and uh, the, the 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 case is still going through hearings. It was recently approved as a class action suit, the first of its kind here in Canada. Then um, the, the last one is um, sort of a more policy-oriented piece that looks at the temporary foreign worker program and and um, reforms and measures to protect these workers. Um, it's a bit contentious because some lawyers are calling on the entire scrapping of the program. Some are just reforming it. Some are, you know, saying that it's a broken system and should be replaced by permanent immigration, which is what Canada was known for in the first place. Before we get to that, can we take a step back? And uh, for those maybe unfamiliar with the program, uh, what is this program um, and how many workers across the country are we talking about? Right. Okay. Uh, the Temporary Foreign Worker Program is a, it's both an immigration and a labor program. Um, it's overseen by the Human Resources Department and the Immigration Department of Canada. And um, what it does is it recruits workers from abroad to fill in labor shortages here in Canada, which is also contentious because a lot of these so-called shortages are not really shortages. They're just not seeking out Canadians first for the job because hiring temporary foreign workers is cheaper, um, according to some experts uh, of of the field. Um, And so uh, there's around 300,000 temporary foreign workers recruited last year, sorry, in 2011. Um, there's there, the cap changes every year. Actually, sorry, there is no cap. The, the numbers increase every year, but unlike any other immigration stream, this one doesn't have a quota. Right. And so it's sort of a free-for-all for these um, international companies and even sort of middle-class families because um, this, this program is also used to take in domestic workers from abroad to uh, be caregivers here in Canada. Right, right. I wanted to, you you pull out some quite incredible numbers in uh, in uh, one of the pieces. Um, you compare it between permanent residents that the country takes in, and I just want to quote you. Um, and this is uh, in, I believe, uh, the uh, second piece, "The Invisibles: Migrant Workers in Canada." Is that correct? That's the second. Oh, that's the first. First, piece. first piece. But you write that there were. 300,111 migrant workers in Canada in 2011, a more than threefold increase over the previous decade. Another 190,769 entered that year, creating a temporary foreign workforce of nearly half a million. In 2010, Mm -hmm. the government accepted one and a half times more migrant workers than permanent Canadian residents. I'm going to read that again. In 2010, the government accepted one and a half times more migrant workers than permanent Canadian residents. I think that's mm-hmm. astounding. I think that's something that most Canadians, I would imagine, are are completely unaware of. Yeah, actually, that flew off the radar. It was actually in 2006, uh, for the first time, when the Conservative uh, Party became uh, came to power, um, was the first time that temporary foreign workers exceeded the number of permanent residents in Canada. And since then, it has been skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. So it's getting worse and worse every year. I want to return to a number of the um, ab- abuses that you describe in, um, I believe, in the first and second um, uh, uh, articles in the series. Um, you talk about um, 
a number of different scenarios and um I, just to to go back to that um can you tell tell me more about uh the case with Denny's uh, sure. So Denny's, um, there's about 70 Filipinos, um, I think one Mexican who's part of the class action suit, um, who filed um, uh, a class action suit against Denny's um, for unpaid overtime and um, unpaid airfares and uh, not giving them the promised hours in their contracts. Now, so what, yeah. sorry. now, just to jump in, how are, are workers recruited for these types of jobs in, I assume this is Denny's, in uh, all across Canada or just Vancouver? Oh, it's all across, all across Canada, across. yeah. It's, there is, you know, um, depending on which industries need more workers, um, you know, Western Canada, for example, would have more uh, construction workers, more restaurant workers, uh, hospitality workers, whereas um, Ontario has the most uh, caregivers. Um, Quebec is actually really low on the use of temporary foreign workers, um, I think partly because that, that province just has a more progressive labor position and, and they have more control of their immigration. Right. And so, yeah, it, it depends, but um, mostly Western Canada and Ontario are the main uh, users of the program. Um, Manitoba and Saskatchewan also uh, use a lot of workers, but they also, um, well, they also um, segue them into permanent residency more, Manitoba especially. So Denny's w would use a recruiter, is that right, in in Mexico or in a city? Yeah, yeah. sometimes that's the problematic yeah. thing. Sometimes um, they do use third-party recruiters, but by law it's supposed to be the employers right. that pay for the recruitment fees. Um, but obviously these a lot of these workers, they don't know um, that that's their, you know, the the employment code in, in Canada and uh, some of them, you know, are just really looking forward to a better life here and are willing to give up their life savings for that opportunity. And so some of them have paid, you know, 2000 to, I think the highest documented is $20,000 to a recruitment agency to be able to come here. And what's even more problematic is that if these agencies are abroad, there's no way to actually penalize or regulate them. Um, but here in Canada, they exist as well, and, and there is still very little oversight, or rather none, mm -hmm. for these agencies, except uh, I think it was Manitoba and Alberta who, who um, created measures that uh, all agencies have to be registered with the provincial government. Otherwise, there, there is no actual um, mechanism in place to, to penalize these recruitment agencies. And how are workers treated when they come uh, to a place like Vancouver and do not, I assume, they don't come here with the same rights as a Canadian citizen or even a permanent resident? Is that, is that the case? Well, technically, you know, according to uh, Citizenship and Immigration Canada and Human Resources and Skills Development Canada, they do have the same rights. They are protected under provincial labor codes and employment standard branches. The problem is that most the employment standards branch in most pro provinces is complaint driven. 
And so being that they mostly work in low-sector jobs, the likelihood of them to complain is already really low because of the precarious nature of their work. But adding their temporary status to that, they're more than likely to be, you know, some of the most compliant workers. And so, yes, they, they technically do have the, the same rights as Canadians. They just don't know what their rights are, first of all. And um, and usually they, they're also not covered for um, settlement and integration services because they're seen as temporary people. There is no need to help them, you know, learn English or or find out, you know, where their local doctors are, or how much uh, medical services uh, for the for you know provincially covered services are. So they're they're left in the dark, really. Absolutely. Just returning back to the Canada line, I also think this is an issue that um, many in Vancouver um, may not know that the Canada line was built um, through largely through this program. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell me about the differences between, you briefly touched on it um, in your introduction, but the differences in wages even between uh, Europeans who are part of uh, the Temporary Foreign Worker Program uh, here uh, building the Candle Line versus those um, from Latin American countries? Yeah, well, specifically in this case, um, the Europeans were apparently paid 92% more than the Latin Americans. Uh, the Latin Americans initially, as I mentioned, got uh, less than $5 an hour. Um, but when they started to unionize, and, and they are probably, you know, very few migrant workers who are actually successfully unionized, um, the employers quickly raised their wages to $10.81 an hour. Um, but this is still strikingly much lower than the European workers who were getting around, uh, uh, I think it was 80 to $90,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the Latin Americans were getting around 45000 a year uh, eventually when, when their wages were increased. And so there was still a huge gap. And so this is why they won their human rights case. It was on the basis of, of uh, discrimination um, based on country of origin. Can you tell me about the role that Joe Barrett played in all of this and who he is? Oh, Joe Barrett, he he played a huge role in in this case. Um, he uh, is the one who initially approached the workers, uh, but he he did so with the rest of with other organizers with um, the CSWU. Um, but uh, throughout the process, um, he sort of acted as as. He wasn't a f- the formal translator within the court hearings, but he definitely, you know, he was a former Spanish teacher, so he was one of the main spokespersons for them during the time. And um, he even paid for his own ticket to go um, reimburse some of these workers for their pension when he found out that uh, they, some of them turned 60. So uh, he personally went to Costa Rica himself and Throughout this whole process, um, he actually moved to Costa Rica permanently and retired, but helped me um, get the interviews to these migrant workers and, and, you know, really decipher a lot of the legalities of the case. The way you uh, write about it in in your article, um, it's almost like he he kind of came upon them as they were working and and engaged um, in discussion with them and 
it almost is sort of this sort of like you know it just happened to you know the the occasion happened to present itself and i'm just wondering um had he not been in that situation or played that role mm -hmm. might this mm -hmm. story have unfolded differently obviously um oh, yeah. it's not completely resolved um and this issue is far from being resolved um more broadly mm -hmm. but it kind of struck me as as an interesting moment yeah actually that um, moment came up because um, he said that he had um, Canadian unionized workers come in and and talk to him or, or report at least to the BC trades union that um, that they found out there's these Latin American workers on site and you know they they feel like they're being paid a lot lower their meal plans are are lower and such and so uh joe barrett went into the work site and investigated so to say um their wages and that's when he you know called through the fences and and they came running up to him happy to hear that somebody speaks spanish and and talk about their work conditions with but that goes to show yeah that unionized workers uh play unionized workers have a totally different um uh, sort of perspective on on labor and uh, and yeah, I think it's partly also related to that and and that migrant workers can't really unionize in Canada goes to show how much more entrenched in exploitation they are. You write in um, the in in the second article in the series. The convenience of the serene new Canada Line SkyTrain in Vancouver transporting cheerful strangers from the airport to downtown painted a pretty picture of Canada as a host of the 2010 Winter Olympics. But the celebration of multiculturalism came at a hefty price, approximately $3.57 per hour. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you now, what are the prospects of, of reforming this system, changing it, um, preventing these things from happening in the future? And this is sort of the focus of... Um, your last article or even your last two articles in this series, how do we regulate this and prevent um, this type of exploitation um, from happening um, in our, in our very own cities where we like, like you mentioned, we like to celebrate multiculturalism. At least we like to tell ourselves that we do. Um, but how do we, you know, this is, this is a dark side of, of neoliberalism, I would argue. Um, and mm -hmm. I think it's, it's blatantly clear that this should be unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, um, I spoke to different uh, labor lawyers, uh, some of them specifically just labor, some social justice oriented, and uh, a couple union leaders like Joe Barrett and Gil McGowan, who's the president of the Florida Federation of Labor. Um, and basically what they've all said in common was that um, they think that there needs to be a regulating body. Um, to make sure that employment standards are being met, to make sure that these workers are not being abused, and you know, to have inspectors go into their work sites and enforce that. Um, and then there's sort of a more radical stance um, that uh, the Alberta Federation of Labor has taken, which is that they should just scrap it. It's you know, it's it's a broken system and. Um, Canada has always favored permanent immigration. Um, if they're good enough to work here, they're good enough to stay. And so they, they don't like the idea of temporary workers, period. Um, so, and because that specifically is what 
makes them disposable and and vulnerable. And so there is there's there is two stances on it. Um, the reform, uh, which is just you know protect them and and uh, put mechanisms in place that they're not um, abused, and then there's uh, just scrap it all together. But I mean, aside from that, I mean, uh, you know, everybody agrees that these migrant workers, they you know, it's they have human rights and and they should be treated fairly in Canada. And so there's other things like not having them tied to one employer specifically because uh, their their temporary work c- contracts um, specify their employer. And so what happens is when they are um, treated badly in their workplace, they have very little recourse to find another job because that's legally who they're supposed to be working for. If not, they could get deported. And a lot of times if they want to find work, um, change their work, they have to find one themselves. And, you know, for those especially who don't speak um, English, uh, like a lot of farm workers who come in come from South America, they don't know, you know, where to even start. And so they're stuck. So that's the condition of most of the of the migrant workers, and so that's that's one thing that they're calling on. And and the other thing is uh, the regulation of these agencies that take advantage of their already vulnerable position and charge, you know, exorbitant fees from them um, in the hope of a stake at permanent residency here in Canada, which is often a false hope because there's very little ways to achieve that unless you are in Manitoba where they do take in uh, permanent residence after the temporary foreign worker program or caregivers who after two years of of work or 3,900 hours of work can apply for permanent residency but even at that it's not guaranteed so or at least it takes years upon years for the processing before they actually receive it so there's a lot of, of loopholes too to that. So they're just calling on a lot more regulation, at least. Obviously, there's uh, a language used to defend this program, uh, particularly from industry. Uh, mm-hmm. What is the logic that they use? And this is, um, in many regards, the same logic that is used um, by the federal conservative government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, when this series rolled out, uh, I got emails from Citizenship and Immigration Canada and Human Resources and Skills Development Canada, the two departments that oversee the program. And throughout the actual writing of the the stories, I had a hard time contacting. But once it was, you know, published, it was like, oh, well, can we get our word in there? (laughs) So, you know, they defended it as... um, you know, they do have the same rights as everyone. There are mechanisms in place. They fall under labor codes. But, you know, as, as most of these experts have mentioned, that's that's that doesn't really work because it's complaint-driven. And uh, the other point that they made was different provinces have initiated different measures to protect these workers. So, for example, in Ontario in June 2012, they created an inspection. They inspected... Um, some agencies, recruitment agencies, and, um, you know, Alberta did an audit, I think back in 2007 of employers, um, and then, you know, Manitoba and Alberta have enforced uh, these agencies to to be registered with uh, the provincial government, things like that, but 
uh, one one of the critics, uh, Gil McGowan, who's uh, the president of the Alberta Federation of Labor, said, well, you know, the provinces have stepped up because the federal government have done has done nothing, really. It looks great on paper, all these, you know, policy changes and, and reforms that they and protections that they say that they have in place, but they don't actually use them. I think he specifically said, well, they have the tools, but they don't use them. Hmm. And so... Yeah, it's it's uh, and he described it as a paper tiger. <laughs> right. I want to ask so it's, you it's nothing more than a formality. I want to ask you what the implications are for this program, and um, obviously, labor representatives are concerned that this um, is sets a dangerous precedent and sets um, things in motion like increasing racial tensions um, because it essentially mm-hmm. pits uh, workers who are more easily exploited um, because mm-hmm. they're here um, earning less, um, maybe preventing uh, domestic or Canadian citizens from those jobs. Now, again, industry would argue they're only doing this because there aren't Canadians that are willing to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, based on your research for this series, um, what was the, you know, how prevalent was that concern among um, some of the, the activists and, and labor organizers that you spoke with? Oh, they were all really concerned about, yeah, the racial tensions um, that, you know, domestic workers are pitted against foreign workers. In the end, there's this two-tier system that's created, but nobody really wins because uh, what happens is that if they depress the wages through the use of a cheap foreign workforce, then most likely uh, local wages would also go down because there's no incentive to actually increase it if there is the access to cheaper labor from abroad. Yeah. And the other thing is the you know the hard won rights of uh, eight-hour workdays, you know medical benefits, um, overtime pay, and so forth that Canadians work hard to win uh, would most likely also be eroded because you know, because temporary foreign workers, uh, because of the lack of a regulation system, are more docile. They're willing to work overtime. They're willing to, you know, do more than eight hours a day. They're willing to work uh, without medical coverage. And so that in general um, uh, erodes the um, labor conditions here in Canada. Uh, But a lot of them are also very... um, wary to say that it's not that they do not want foreign workers and that's one of the the main problems too with some of the stances that uh, unions have put out there is that um, it's it's not that um, they're xenophobic and and racist and do not want migrant workers to come in it's that they do not want migrant workers to be exploited in Canada and they do want the Canadian workforce to be sought out first so there's sort of this misinterpreted um, view of, of of seeing migrant workers as as um, people who steal Canadian jobs, so to say, you know. But I think the people that should really be um, scrutinized here are these transnational companies who are here for profit and and don't even get a slap on the wrist when a worker is you know injured, exploited, or even dies on the job. So these employers, first of all, and second of all, the conservative government for 
allowing such abuses to exist. They, they very well know. There's tons and tons of research put together by unions and academics and scholars and independent researchers, you name it, and, um, you know, they, they do recommendations at the end of all these reports, but there's very little done to actually change it. Prophet speaks. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's quite interesting that the the logic of the market is is often used to say, you know, or or it's in this case we're bringing in temporary foreign workers, um, but you want to say, well, maybe if you raise the wages, you would incentivize Canadian domestic exactly. workers to take those jobs, and you wouldn't even need this program. So, I find the whole the whole logic around this is pretty pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. You close your last article uh, with a section entitled Becoming the Dubai of the North. Can you expand on that? Yeah. Oh, that quote is amazing. It was from Gil McGowan, who's the Alberta Federation of Labor President. And uh, and he, he drew that comparison that Canada is becoming the next Dubai of the North, not only because we have oil, he said, but because we're abandoning real immigration in favor of this um, guest worker system, guest worker term uh, originates actually from Europe, and um, uh, uh, I'm not sure if a lot of people know, but Europe and, and um, some Middle Eastern countries such as uh, Dubai and Saudi Arabia do use a lot of temporary foreign workers as well. Um, they're not always called temporary foreign workers or migrant workers, and they have different um, streams for it as well, but um, you know they don't have... Uh, they don't have chances to apply for permanent residency. And so Canada is sort of following this model by applying that same uh, labor system here. So it's kind of scary because there are some horrible cases in, in other countries of, you know, people getting thrown out of balconies or, or you know, beaten or, you know, I mean, they really have, you know, very little rights. And so not to say also that, you know, Canada is, is any better because they're there. They do have very little protection here, too. So I think that's why he's saying, you know, we should be careful because we don't want to turn into that country that, you know, is willing to sacrifice lives in the name of profit. Crystal, any final words you want to leave listeners with? I'm sorry? Any final words to leave listeners with, or do you want to leave it at that? Um, yeah, I mean, I would I would love for the public to be more informed about this issue. Um, it was It's barely brought up in Parliament. Um, during the elections, it was only brought up once by the late Jack Layton. And so I think if Canadians were more informed, then we'd have a better position and, on this matter, and uh, it would be discussed much more... Um, you know, not just in in Parliament, but in general, and uh, we could start taking a stance against abuse. I, I mean, everybody points to all these developing countries where uh, human rights violations exist, but nobody knows that it happens in our own backyards. Well, Crystal, thank you for the work uh, you've done putting uh, so much time into researching these articles. Really appreciate it, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks.
On Friday, January 25th, come to Seymour Mountain for the Great Northern Concrete Toboggan Race, an annual event that challenges the creativity, innovation, and technical skills of engineering students from all across Canada. Participating teams must design and construct a toboggan with a metal frame and a running surface made completely out of concrete. For more information, go to gnctr2012.com. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca. And you can find this as a podcast at thecityfm.org and a full uh, archive of past podcasts at thecityfm.org as well. So check it out. That was uh, uh, Crystal Alarcon, a uh, reporter um, and uh, journalist, uh, discussing her four-part series uh, published at the TAI and uh, you can check that series out at the uh, and that's um, 
was on the Foreign Temporary Worker Program and really discussing sort of an urban lens um, or uh, putting an urban lens on uh, this program to see what are the implications of um, bringing in migrant workers who are, ne are, are not necessarily coming in and getting paid um, wages and in many cases, like we heard about the Canada line, um, coming in um, to the labor market and getting paid less than minimum wage. And we really need to ask what those implications are if we have labor programs like that, um, that are bringing people in. And as she explained, um, the program is really prone uh, to exploitative conditions um, in many cases, and she outlined a number of these. And uh, to check that out, I, I really recommend uh, going to that series um, at the TAI. And um, we're going to wrap up the show, but um, I just want to thank uh, Crystal for um, providing commentary and really discussing a number of the issues around uh, Canada's Foreign Temporary Worker Program. And I encourage you uh, to learn more about that. And um, we're going to continue on with our ongoing series um, over the next number of months, um, The Working City, and exploring the economic landscapes and the future of um, urban economies uh, throughout the series and um, in upcoming episodes on the city. So uh, certainly stay tuned for that. Uh, lots more to come um, and really trying to both take a local focus, uh, Vancouver focus, um, but also look at some of those global connections. So um, are these issues the same um, issues that are faced in other localities, other cities, other regions, or are they different? Um, and where are those connections and where are those tensions? And what are those even those contradictions inherent in some of these processes of labor restructuring and, and things like the temporary um, uh, worker program. So more to come on um, the Working City, an ongoing series exploring urban economies. But again, thank you so much for tuning in. We're going to go out with a few tracks. And again, uh, you can also find, um, as I mentioned, past podcasts at www.thecityfm.org. And uh, be sure to tune in line f live 5 p.m. on uh, Tuesdays here on CITR 101.9 FM. Also on uh, CJSF 90.1 FM from Burnaby at uh, Friday at 10 a.m. And um, you've got Flex Your Head coming up next at 6 p.m. here on CITR. If you're tuning in uh, syndicated on CJSF, you've got Democracy Now! coming up at 11 a.m. with Amy Goodman. And we'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. Thank you so much for tuning in and have a wonderful week.
Despite the fact that 8 in 10 Canadians are against warrantless and costly online spying, the government remains stubborn, set to cement this scheme into law. With their huge PR budget, they've unleashed a reckless and irresponsible campaign that suggests warrantless collection of our private data is on par with a phone book. We can't let them trick Canadians. Go to www.openmedia.ca now to find out what you can do to get involved and stop this smoke and mirrors campaign the government has started.
time someone controls everything about you and when they tell you that they just can't live without you they ain't lying they'll take pieces of you and they'll stand above you and walk away 